Hello, and welcome to The Inoculation. This is a new podcast on which we're going to discuss how vaccination became a matter of belief in Europe. We'll talk a bit about our project first. When we first worked on anti-vaccination and the anti-vaccination group, we were looking at actually uh, measles anti-vaccination groups, and we wanted to see how politicians and political groups are using anti-vaccination beliefs to further their own own political agenda. And as we were working on this, the coronavirus pandemic broke out and we saw some of the same mechanisms, but also very different things uh, happening with the coronavirus and the coronavirus vaccine that we had already seen with the measles vaccine. So we just decided to take a closer look to see what's going on there. I'm your co-host. My name is Eva von Schaper. I'm hosting this podcast together with Diva. And we're both journalists, and we've both been reporting on healthcare for a number of years. Hello, my name is Daiva Repechkaite. I'm a Lithuanian journalist. And we started this project with a view of seeing how anti-vaccination movements express themselves and influence politics in different regions. So northern, southern, eastern and western Europe. Okay, and uh, I think today we want to talk about how we can estimate the size of the movement and why it might be difficult to estimate the size of the movement. One thing I don't really understand yet, Daiva, is why is it so important to know the size of the movement? You know, will this tell us anything about the uptake of the coronavirus vaccines? I think quite a few people fell into this trap, and uh, this was why the movement was dismissed for so many years. Because it sounded like uh, it's a movement of people with very extreme ideas or very anti-scientific ideas. But actually, as we saw, for example, in the Italian case, uh, when an election came about, it became a political force. Maybe not necessarily something that can swing election on its own, but it's something that was the talk of the town and something that was causing a lot of concern in people and especially parents. So I think we would need to know roughly about the size of the movement just to make sure that we're all talking about the same thing. For example, that we don't overestimate and we don't create a, a straw man. And at the same time, we need to make sure that we don't uh, underestimate the movement and its influence. You know, I think you're right. And one thing that I found was very worrying last week, we talked to a researcher from the University of Oxford, and he said, well, while right now these are movements that are concerned with uh, anti-vaccination, they can very easily be used to further non-democratic ideas. So I think it's really important to see, you know, what potential is there out there? What uh, reservoir of people are there that can be used and, and possibly politicized via the anti-vaccination movement? Exactly. And we've been reading a lot about different conspiracies surrounding vaccination. And most of them concluded that once you start believing in one conspiracy, it's very easy to be drawn into more of them uh, or almost all of them or some kind of meta-conspiracies that uh, people share. Yes, you're right. I think what's also interesting is that, for example, we've seen some of this happening already. We've seen people buying into conspiracy theories, for example, with QAnon. I mean, that's something that's become a mainstream movement. And an international movement at that. 
Exactly. So first, let's just move back a little bit and go to the point where we started, which was in 2019. And I think one of the surprising things for me was that at that point, vaccine hesitancy was already among the 10 major global threats to public health, according to the World Health Organization. So my big question was always, you know, we know that there's always been some vaccine hesitancy, you know, looking back at the 18th century, the 19th century, and there's always been that, and it's always coexisted together with vaccines. So why is it such a big topic now? What is special about our day and age is that it's very easy to share all kinds of statements, information as well as misinformation. Science has become more accessible than ever, and many people can look up academic papers and see what the scientific debate is all about. They can sort of double check what their doctors tell them. At the same time, it's very easy to spread misinformation. This is what all the experts have been telling us, that anti-vaccination sentiment exploded with social media because the algorithms of social media prioritize anything that causes debate, anything that uh, people will engage in, especially since Facebook added these buttons that uh, you don't only like content, you, you can also express anger and sadness. So anything that is divisive will be prioritized by this algorithm, will get more shares and will be more visible just because whether people like it or hate it, they will engage with it and they will add some kind of emotional reaction or a comment. Mm -hmm. And I think what we also learned was that people usually go online not necessarily to learn about new information, but also to confirm their own beliefs. So if somebody is already leaning towards vaccine skepticism, finding anti-vaccination messages online will let them confirm their bias. Is that right? Is that how you understood it as well? Yes, I think there's a lot of research showing that people look for or formulate their questions in a way that already shows their bias or their concerns and usually misinformation promoters are very good at keywords and very good at being discovered using exactly these keywords that are present in people's concerns. I remember reading a study about how people land on misinformation pages and usually those people who engage with misinformation, they come to it via Facebook or email. So someone sends it to them. Whereas if they use a search engine, they're more likely to find uh, correct information. So we talked to Jonathan Kennedy, who lectures on global public health at Queen Mary University of London. And he told us that looking at the number of parents who may have been exposed to misinformation about vaccines can give us an idea about the size of the movement. Let's just listen in to hear what he told us in this interview. There was a report published by the Royal Society for Public Health in the UK a year ago or a couple of years ago showing that 50% of parents with children under five have been exposed to misinformation about vaccines. There's recent research that really shows that vaccine misinformation online has an effect on people's attitudes towards vaccines and people's likelihood to, to vaccinate. And we also kind of know lots more about where this misinformation is coming from. So Daiva, I think you looked at the 2018 Welcome Global Monitor. Can you remind me and, and tell me what was in there? Yeah, so when we think about uh, anti-vaccination, I think we have to make a distinction between vaccine hesitancy, which doesn't necessarily mean that people will not comply with vaccine schedules, and anti-vaccination sentiment, which is mostly about actively opposing the idea that vaccines save lives. 
The Welcome 2018 Global Monitor measured to what extent people have doubts in vaccine safety and effectiveness. Almost three quarters of people they interviewed in Northern America and Northern Europe agree that vaccines are safe. That's not enough for the full herd immunity recommended by scientists, but uh, that's a pretty high number. Meanwhile, in Western Europe, this figure was 59%, and it was only 40% in Eastern Europe. Then there are some outliers in this. In France, one in three people, so one third, disagree that vaccines are safe. And that's the highest percentage of any country worldwide. Yeah, that's yeah, that does sound like a very high number. Do you think it's possible that some of these people that you know we saw in these surveys that they think that the vaccines that maybe are not ideal but they're still preferable to the risk of infectious diseases? Was there anything about that in the study? Yeah, exactly. So they compared these findings to the vaccination compliance, and they found that 92% of parents worldwide said that their children have received some vaccine. 6% said that they did not. 2% said that they did not know. That doesn't mean full compliance with all the vaccinations that are planned for children. Still, the number is pretty high, so most parents do comply. The highest number of parents who said that their children did not receive a vaccine were not in those regions that, that I previously mentioned, but Southern Africa, so 9% did not receive anything. East Asia and South Asia, 8% each. Even when people have concerns, most of the time they will still comply. Okay, and for example, if we look at Southern Africa and Southeast Asia, we're not sure if this was a problem that concerns vaccine delivery. Do we know that? I think it's safe to say that uh, in these situations, logistics plays a big part. Actually, it, logistics is still important in Europe and some countries have had vaccine stockouts. And we also talked to Jason Reifler, a researcher who works at the University of Exeter, and um, he researches anti-vaccination movements. And let's listen into what he told us about this topic. In broad outline, there's a chunk of the population, let's say 20 to 30%, that's hugely pro-vaccine. Uh, this is coming from survey, survey data. If you ask them any question you ask them about vaccines, they are enthusiastic. They believe vaccines are great. And they say they'll do whatever the doctor tells them about vaccines. They're not worried about side effects that come with, with vaccines. There's another group, and this is I think the most important group, to, also probably about 20 to 30% of the population, that is, in the abstract, very positive towards vaccines. And if, if you ask them questions like, you know, vaccines are a good thing, they say yes. You ask them, do you know, do you do what your doctor recommends for you for vaccines? They say yes. If you then start asking them specific questions, are you worried about side effects? They also say yes, or, or you know, they're a little bit less pro-vaccine there, or. Um, should parents have the right to refuse vaccines if they want? They'll say yes. Do you think that some vaccines cause autism? They're more likely to say yes to that, or less likely to say no. This is the crucial group of, of who are thinking of as the vaccine hesitant. That is, people who are favorably predisposed to vaccines, but also have some underlying concern or fear or anxiety that could potentially be mobilized. There's another group, again, probably roughly the same size, you know, in the 20 to 30% range, 
um, that in surveys, they just don't have strong attitudes one way or the other towards vaccines. If you ask them a bunch of questions, they probably haven't thought about this stuff before, and they're pretty much choosing don't know in the midpoint for the scale entirely. There is a small, hardcore anti-vax population mm -hmm. that's less than 5% mm -hmm. of the samples. And one thing that was very interesting that we found, which was really in, um, not that clear to me before, was that um, people's opinions and the compliance with the vaccine or vaccine schedules in countries um, really depends on the vaccine. For example, we found a story in Slate, and I think we'll link to it below. In Italy, it's estimated that only 1% of parents refuse all vaccines for their children, and 15%, which is about one-sixth, want to pick and choose which vaccines their children receive. Going back to the welcome study, in France, researchers also noticed that there was an increase in vaccine hesitancy after a controversial influenza pandemic vaccination campaign in 2009. And we can still see that years later, 20% or a fifth of all French respondents uh, said they don't think that vaccines are effective and one in 10 10% said that they didn't agree that vaccines were important for children to receive. And in Austria, you know, the trust in various vaccines has also been affected by the fear of adverse effects. And if we look at Japan, there are concerns with the safety of the human papilloma virus vaccines. And those concerns spilled over to cause lower confidence in other vaccines, including those against rubella and measles. Daiva, is there anyone else who who was able to help us understand this. Yeah, as we were trying to figure out whether people just like to express these concerns in surveys because someone is talking to them, we talked to Oxford Vaccine Group researcher, Dr. Samantha van der Slot. She mentioned to us that it makes a difference whether a survey asks people about some hypothetical vaccine or whether uh, we are evaluating an actual product that uh, people know that their doctor has in their practice. So let's hear what she had to say. What we've been relying on so far are, are the polls before the vaccines had been rolled out to get an indication of um, what people might do. And I think um, probably quite a lot of the vaccine researchers took those with a pinch of salt, really, because yeah. people talking about a hypothetical vaccine with um, quite limited information are going to register different views. As the vaccines have been rolled out, there has been quite good uptake and not, not very obvious um, examples of refusal. Okay, so we also talked to Jonathan Kennedy, who works on vaccines and populism. He told us it's really useful to look at vaccine trust as part of a continuum. I guess it's useful to think of attitudes to vaccines as a kind of spectrum, right? So on the, on the one extreme over here, you have people that firmly believe that vaccines are safe and effective, and they won't be swayed by anything. And then on the other extreme, you have the kind of um, what we might call the anti-vaxxers or the kind of pretty extreme extreme people who, who believe that vaccines are unsafe and it's all part of a conspiracy. I think the thing is, you know, you have this big group in the middle of, you know, we could say in English like fence sitters, like people that sit on the fence. You know, I'm not sure if you ever saw this Netflix documentary about that. Facebook and its influence on the US election, but they talked about persuadables. Yeah, okay. No, I haven't, and, but yeah. Yeah, so yeah they talked about persuadables as well. Like these people that basically have, um, you know, kind of don't really know, have heard information 
question from both sides and are trying to weigh up what's best for themselves and what's best for their families. In Lithuania, in preparation for the rollout of the COVID vaccines, the military was tasked with estimating the size of the anti-vaccination movement using a method that only takes into account public expressions of this sentiment. So they studied how users engage with vaccine-related information on the main news websites and their social media accounts. And the military analysts found that active anti-vaxxers if we can call them that, constituted around 7% of all these users engaging with this information. Meanwhile, around 60% were pro-vaccine, so they were posting positive comments about the vaccines uh, in question. Still, this 7% group was very vocal, and the analysts uh, think that they are coordinating their actions and their comments in closed groups to which these analysts uh, did not have access to. So for now, they are only judging the, the extent of this coordination by the similarity of the comments posted. This figure has been making rounds in the press, and now the 7% is sort of the number that is mostly used in reference to the anti-vaccination movement. Vaccine hesitancy, so you know what we talked about, parents wanting to pick and choose vaccines would probably be higher. Okay, so, so how does this compare to what Jason Reifler found? If you look at vaccine compliance rates in countries, they stay pretty high. Okay. Uh, and the childhood vaccination compliance schedules across Europe are mostly above 90%. This is, again, this is why that vaccine hesitant population, I think, is, is really, really important, and that most of the time they comply. The okay. truth is strong anti-vaxxers, they're just not going to, it's very unlikely they're going right. to comply, but it's very, very small. So do we know if there's, if there are any social groups that tend to distrust vaccines the most? I don't think anyone has very solid comparative data, but we have some data from different countries and we also have different anecdotal accounts. But as a general rule, we see more distrust in the healthcare system from groups that have a history of bad experience with, with the healthcare system. So we talked to Maya Goldenberg, a philosophy professor at the University of Guelph, about the issues in data gathering that have to do with these different groups. The reason that white people are in the research looking more hesitant is because the social scientists are only talking to white people. Yeah, it was it was really methodological neglect. So there were so few studies. I think I found five studies on looking at people of color. First of all, how they feel about pediatric vaccines. I, I found two studies by the same research group. It's because uh, the social scientists were using convenience sampling for bringing in um, participants. So you convenience sampling is like you pick a spot that's the most convenient, like let's say a large healthcare center in downtown Baltimore, which might actually be a good spot because they serve a diverse population. But they do things like you put a, a number up on a bulletin board and say, hey, call me if you want to talk about, be part of a research on vaccine hesitancy. And guess who's most likely to answer those calls? It's going to be people with more time and people who feel empowered and think they've got something to say that's, that is worth hearing. So only largely white people respond to that. And you see it written in the studies as a limitation, like 72% of our respondents self-identified as, as non-Hispanic white. 
But what that didn't do was motivate the researchers to like get this going, like go, you have to actively yeah. recruit people from racialized communities because they don't have the time often and they don't have the desire to talk right. to social scientists. And, and like social scientists know this. I'm not saying anything new. So in European and North American societies, we see that we have single digit percentages of the population that actively oppose vaccination. And then depending on the vaccine debates in the public eye, we find that an absolute majority are for vaccines in the abstract. But some of these people are likely to have concerns about specific vaccines or specific vaccine policies. And finally, there's a large group of so-called fencers. It is important to note that for some people, surveys are opportunities to talk about and to express their concerns. So I think we have to bear in mind that not all people who disagree with statements like vaccines are safe or vaccines are effective are actively opposing or opting out of vaccination. At the same time, people who do not hold these beliefs might be prevented from getting a vaccine for themselves or their children because of logistical issues. Before we finish our podcast, we'd just like to close and like to tell you a bit about the stories we recently published from our project. So, Diva, do you want to tell our listeners about some of the issues we've been working on? Yeah, so in February, we published uh, a story in IQ magazine in Lithuania, where we tackled uh, the influence of vaccine debates on elections in Lithuania, which were in October last year. And there was a very useful survey of candidates. So now we know the opinion on vaccination mandates, so vaccination requirements at schools, from about 300 candidates. And we thank the team of manobalsas.lt for giving us access to the data. We also published a story in NARA, in Lithuanian and in English, where you can see our interviews and a lot of expert insights into vaccine hesitancy among Lithuanian parents. Okay, and if you have any comments, you can always email us at theinoculation at gmail.com. And to make sure you never miss our stories and conversations, you can follow us on Twitter at tinoculation. That's T like tango. Our Instagram is the underscore inoculation. And you can also follow us individually. I'm at Eva Von Schaper. That's S-C-H, all in one word. And I'm at diva underscore hadiva. Our research is supported by journalismfund.eu. Thank you for listening and bye for now.